Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is Angelus Morningstar here with Story Mode. This is the podcast for Storyboard Gamer. In today's episode, I have several interesting topics. Most of them are going to focus on the role and relevance of casual games. To start with, I'm going to explore this question of what a party game is and what that means for trying to connect the right game to the target audience. Following this is the usual elevator pitch, and this week I've chosen to cover code names as that seems to be appropriate. I have a big section on chit encounters where I explore several new parlor games, including Pictomania. And then I dive into our table topic of the week where I look at the design challenges of making a really good casual game. Let's get started. Today on Retail, the segment where I share tales from the shopfront. One of my personal bugbears at the store is the term party games. Now the term party games generally means a more casual game designed to accommodate larger numbers of players and for which there is a lighter set of rules. As a descriptor, it's reasonably apt. All of these games are the sorts of games that you could play at a party where there is some kind of distraction and you don't have to focus as deeply on the game in front of you. However, as a catch-all term, it actually encompasses a couple of different types of games that usually get lumped together. And my problem as someone who works in a store is they are actually pitched to different markets. So we can't actually have a section of party games unless we break it down a little bit more. Here's where I usually try to divide it. First off, we have games like Cards Against Humanity, What Do You Mean, Joking Hazard, and I generally refer to these games as novelty games or comedy games. The main point of these games is to have a bit of a laugh, to have a bit of a silly, frivolous engagement. It's not meant to be strategic, and this is what people want. They want to have a bit of a laugh. That's different from, say, code names, which I would consider a light parlor game. There is a little bit of a strategic element, but there's also some general knowledge or trivia component. And if you look at the history of the term, it frequently describes games like charades or even more contemporarily, articulate and taboo. And the third subgenre of party game I call social games. This includes things like werewolf and other social deduction games, but it can also include games where a primary function of the game is the social dynamic, maybe coup or other bluffing games as well. Now, a person who wants a light game that is primarily driven by the social engagement does not necessarily want a game that is about the comedy or novelty factor. And a person who wants either of those isn't necessarily looking for a light strategic game like Codenames. There is some crossover. And for these reasons, whenever someone tells me that they want something more casual for a game, I usually have to probe a little bit deeper because people will often tell me, I want a fun game. Mostly that means they want a casual game that doesn't have to overwhelm them. That's what fun usually translates to. But yet I still need to ask questions like, do you want a game that makes you think? Or do you want a game that makes you laugh? Or do you want a game that's about the social aspect of it? Trying to narrow down exactly what a person wants to get out of the experience helps me steer them towards one or another. And sometimes I just even go, can you give me an example of the type of game you want to play? This naturally leads me to this week's elevator pitch. We are going to cover code names. 
Codenames is a team-based game, Red vs Blue. Both teams are trying to determine which of the words in front of them are their team's codenames. Both teams will have a spy master. They sit on the other side of the table and together they get to look at an answer sheet. At this point, they know which words are red, which words are blue, which words are neutral, and which is the dreaded assassin that no one wants to select. Both spy masters take turns giving their teams clues using word associations to drive their guesses. If cat and dog are words belonging to my team, I could give the clue animal. But let's say turkey's there and it's the assassin, I need to avoid that. So better clues would be pet or quadruped or even mammal. Both teams will keep going back and forth, taking turns, giving clues and guessing until one team has figured out all of their code names or alternatively, if anyone selects the assassin, then that's game over straight away. It is apocrypha in the board game industry that the game Codenames was merely an afterthought by Vlada Svartil. In the first half of 2015, Spyfall was tipped to be a Spiel nominee, being the spy game that dominated the year. But very quickly, Codenames surpassed the presence that Spyfall had in the gaming circuit and smashed its way to a Spiel success. Prior to Codenames, there was a range of parlor games that had some presence, including Taboo and Articulate, but they were generally regarded by the hobby as a little bit parochial. Codenames revitalized the modern audience's interest in parlor games. And we can see that not just on the success of Codenames and its many later editions, but there is now a new wave of parlor games that is starting to open up the market. I took some time to indulge many of these and give them my thoughts. The first game that I got to play was Just One from Repost Productions. The principle behind Just One is it is a cooperative party game. It is three to seven players, but you clearly need five or six, I think, to get the right dynamic. Each turn, you'll have a player, they'll pick a number that will reveal to the rest of the group a single word, so they don't know what that word is. Every other player must now write a clue about that word without consulting the other players. But the catch is, if multiple people submit the same clue, those clues are eliminated before the player gets to see them, reducing their chance at guessing correctly. I have to say, my impressions of the game were fair to middling. I was not particularly wowed by this game, but I thought it had some interesting promise. I think for me, the way that this game let itself down was there was such suspense around that reveal and one player doesn't really participate in that. And in general, I just think the pacing of the game was a little bit slow and the team dynamic changed depending on the number of players quite a lot. I found that in smaller groups, you had a better ability at picking words that were a bit more specific because you only had to account for similarities from one or two other people. And I think it's more fun the more people you choose. But at the same time, that is also adding to that stilted, prolonged feeling. Just One isn't a bad game, but it's not one I really felt the need to play again or come back to in any major way. Now, the next game that we got to play was Pictomania. And I'll say right up front, this was probably the highlight of the ones that we got to try out. 
Pictomania is a Pictionary type game where everyone is drawing a sketch. And the way it works is there's a grid of words that everyone can refer to. Each player gets a coordinate which selects one of those words and everyone needs to draw as quickly but as accurately as possible because you want the most amount of time to guess other people's sketches, getting the best points from them, but also you want as many people to guess your sketch correctly, otherwise you lose points. What I think worked really well about Pictomania is that pressure. You can do a lot of really clever things within the time limits that you have, and there is no timer except each other. There's that pressure to race each other to the finish line while also being methodical, and you have to balance up those risks. I think clever players are going to do well in this game because they can think of really succinct ways to encapsulate the idea of an image without having to completely sketch it out. All you need to do is point people to the right word. You don't have to get them to do all of the thinking. But of course, part of the fun of this game is as that pressure mounts, people start getting a little bit more desperate with the images that they're trying to create. And you have these wonderful moments of reveal where you just don't understand how an image is supposed to represent something. So it brings strategy, it brings thought, and it brings comedy. That's a very interesting combination. And the last game that we got to play was Trap Words, also from Check Games Edition. Trap Words is a little bit like Taboo. The idea is that you will have a secret word that you need to get your team to guess. You get to describe it as much as possible within a certain time frame, but before you do, the other team gets to pick a number of trap words, and if you stumble onto any of them, you basically lose your turn. Over the course of the game, you're either going to progress forward with correct guesses or be stuck in the same room and thus have the same level of challenge as before. That is, as you progress, the opposing team gets to select more and more trap words. When we played this game, we found it really hard to get out the front gate. And more often than not, we would linger in that front first room. And in fact, throughout the course of the game, we really would only progress one room at that. What brought it down was the fact that it was a timed game. We were desperately trying to navigate around the traps and the time pressure just meant we would risk those shortcuts. And if you've got a clever opponent, they're going to know how you think. That's the point of the game. The moment we removed the timer, the game became fun. It was much more a game of trying to outmaneuver and outthink your opposing team trying to imagine what words they came up with and thinking of lateral ways to get to your description. You're still limited by the fact that your team has a finite number of guesses. And without that time factor, I found that the pressure to navigate all the hypothetical traps was much more interesting. Maybe a timer is necessary if people start dragging things out, but it was really an unnecessary addition for me. The danger of thinking what words are the obvious and maybe not too obvious ones was the fun of this game. So if you do give trap words a try, get rid of the timer and see how you go. One of the hardest things I find doing is actually reviewing casual games. 
This might seem counterintuitive since the amount of work to learn and play and experience a casual game is in directly opposite to that of a heavy game. But the reason it is hard is because it takes a lot more understanding of games in order to say something worthwhile about a game. To give you a better idea, there is often very little margin between a first impression of a casual game and the full opinion of one. And this topic actually kind of comes to me as I'm putting together this episode. I find it is actually quite difficult to make a significant differentiation between those kind of first impression reviews where you take a sense of the experience of the game. And what I would hope to achieve with a deep dive review where I can break down a game into several of its constituent elements. I think those types of insights are the ones that are more valuable for a deep dive review. And there are not as many layers in simple games to peel back. Casual games are very often transient. We get to play them fast, we get to play them often, and so we burn out on them quicker. Certainly, one of the things that I look to as a marker of a good game is whether it has a recall factor, whether I look back upon it fondly and have good memories of it as a game. Casual games are often approached as filler, so they're the games you play either to palate cleanse yourself from a more involved game or games you play just to stop get the time between. And so when I come across a game where it was the feature despite being a casual game, I think that is a very good indicator of when a casual game has that very precious alchemy of a good game. I also think that designing a casual game, especially a good casual game, is one of the hardest challenges in modern board game design. It is an incredible feat for a game to last into an evergreen status, where people are buying it years after the fact. When we look at the impact of code names, it's really important to understand that not only has it survived as a casual game, but one that experienced players can often come back to to re-enjoy but it has helped bring into modern gaming several imitators. Codenames represents a special kind of alchemy, and I think it'll be hard to replicate. But at the same time, I'm glad that it has broadened the margins of what hobby gamers might consider bringing to their table. And the reason designing for casual can be quite challenging is because a good casual game has to offer a deep experience with a very simple rule set. And to go back to what I mean by this, I will talk about a deep game as something that offers a broad range of experiences or a diverse range of experiences that can stem from a single rule set. Often, heavy and complex games get to offer you a large range of experiences, but that's because there's a lot more moving parts. For a casual game to be successful, you have to find a way for the smallest possible group of rules to provide the greatest possible ranges of experiences. I think even more cleverly, when we look at games like Codenames, very little work has to be done from the point of encounter. Players don't even need to understand the whole rules if they're in a group. 
So a lot of the heavy lifting is done by the presence of the cards on the table and maybe someone more knowledgeable in the game. If you look at many of the imitators that follow, there is extra layers of complication and there's extra layers of production and there's extra layers of things going on. And actually look at the difference between the pure simplicity of code names compared to the relative complexity of some of these other ones. But even beyond that, designing a casual game represents one challenge. Publishing a successful casual game represents another challenge. Casual games are not just cheaper by accident. There are a whole range of market forces that drive the pricing of casual games down. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the public perception of the value of casual games compared to the material cost of those games. There's a strong correlation in the public mind between the weight of a game and its cost. There is an upper ceiling of economically viable price points for casual games, and that is a lot lower than the heavier games. You know, part of it is a correlation between component count and materials. Heavier games tend to have higher component counts, and thus the actual cost of production is generally higher. But the, this also works in reverse. The perception that casual games cannot be expensive is one of the downward pressures that forces publishers to find ways to make them as cheap as possible. And this is a terribly fine line for publishers to navigate. The market is already saturated with casual games. So in order to make these games stand out, there's also a pressure to increase the production value. But while casual games may have on a large fewer parts or components, this means that just like their gameplay, flaws in production stand out much more noticeably. So this gives casual designers and their publishers a double dilemma. The primary demographic of casual games tends to extend broadly into the world of non-gamers, or maybe families who only play games casually, or other non-hobbyist gamers. Unless these people are also enthusiasts for the hobby, they are likely to carry a lot of preconceptions about the cost of games due to a primary exposure to mass market games, which on the whole are cheaper due to economies of scale. However, these games are also specifically designed for obsolescence with a view of cheap purchase that can be replaced with the next year's fad. Even for games of established titles like Monopoly and Cluedo, there is a constant production of limited edition single print runs drawing upon various and popular intellectual properties of however their mere existence often means the public carries with them an assumption that games are cheap designer games even evergreen titles like ticket to ride or Catan, still exist on a different economy of scale from the mass market world and there's just no competition trying to sell a designer game to a more general consumer who has a learned assumption about the cost of games and one grounded in their exposure to mass market games is always going to be a hard sell. So all of these factors create a range of market assumptions that pressure publishers to find the cheapest viable price point for the game to remain competitive. And this exists alongside the challenge of making the game remarkable enough to stand out in a highly competitive market. The benefit of this for the consumer is that the best casual games have a lot of design and production work behind them. But again, this is why I consider a phenomenal casual game to be the mark of really strong talent from the designer, from the publisher, 
and even the marketing department behind them. And that is all we have for this week's episode of Story Mode, the podcast for storyboard gamer. If you like the work that I'm doing here, you can support me by subscribing on Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. Pick a platform. I'm not picky. Pick all of them. That'd make me happy. You can also support me on my Patreon, which is a few dollars a month. And until next time, good night.